Girl, why are you making that bigger than it should be? It was not that bad. Oh, but that's the way I remember it. You can't tell me I didn't remember it that way. Again, this was my siblings discussing past events where one of my siblings thought things were so dramatic and bad and some of my siblings didn't see it that way. Hey, this is Michelle Spiva, and I want to welcome you to today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. So join me on the flip where we get into nostalgia's folly. I'll see you then. Upon further evaluation, I'm going to amend myself and say that I think my sibling might be onto something. You see, when I'm thinking about all of the stuff that I uh, take into uh, my arms to try to figure out the best ways to approach a writing or a story, I am um, faced with having to develop a backstory for a character. Now, I was developing a backstory for a character, and one of their flaws turned out to be that they had a bad case of nostalgia. And when I looked at how um, everybody looks at nostalgia today, it doesn't have such a bad rap. But let's go back and look at this. First of all, I want to say that most people, when they think of the word nostalgia, it's like a... um, a homage or a, a loving fondness of yesteryear. And so if I had to subtitle this uh, Nostalgia's Folly, I would say the fantastic tales of yesteryear. Now, this whole thing of um, my siblings remembering stuff differently. Now, remember, I usually try to stay out of it and I just like look at them like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but them uh, remembering things, some, some of them remember things listfully and say, oh, that was a great time. You know, we had fun and all this kind of stuff. And it was simple and all this, you know, what we would traditionally say is the definition of nostalgia in today's terms. And then I have a few that are like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, it was not cool. And you know me, I had to dig down to try to uh, understand how I was going to get my character to grow in her story. And along the way, I had some wisdom smacks where now, like I said, I have amended my view on this here thing called nostalgia. So let's get into it. The thing is, is with nostalgia, it has to do with a lot of stuff uh, that we look at as our culture, our society, our nature, and our nurture. It is said today that the reason why we've had such an explosion with uh, reboots of um, uh, a lot of different entertainment is, they say simply, because you now have adults who want to share their childhoods with their kids. And I'll give them that on the surface. But I also want to get back to uh, two things. One of them is the reason why people tend to want to relive their uh, childhood or previous times in their life. And that is, uh, one, dealing with the pains of, of the present. You see, on the, on the, on the, 
on the real, it's real hard to be in the now. It's real hard to be here. It's so hard that we daydream, we drift off, we live in a fantasy, or we live in the future where everything is going to be utopic and perfect. Um, And so a lot of times we try to repaint our past so that we can recluse back to it and think of times as when we didn't have the worries that we do today. And then on the other side, there is this developmental growth that um, tries to use it as a therapy, all right? So much so that back in the 17th century, you know, the 1600s, where there were a lot of wars and, you know, we talked about this. This is the time of the beginning of the Enlightenment and folks are coming out of the Dark Ages and they're fighting and, um, you know, trying to... Um, become more aware of the world we live in instead of just scrounging hand to mouth. There were a lot of soldiers that the medical professionals had to deal with. And they realized that a lot of it wasn't necessarily due to their injuries and the horrors of war as much as it was a homesickness. And so they actually thought of it as a medical condition. And the word, even the word nostalgia Uh, comes from nostus, which is uh, homecoming, and then a pain or an ache, which is algos. So that's where we got nostalgia from. And the thing is, is that they went on to uh, say that a lot of people with this ailment of nostalgia had mental illness and that they wouldn't be able to really function in the world because they were caught in this fantasy of uh, being able to be at home. Now, we know that probably a lot of these people were suffering from uh, severe trauma and they were doing any and everything they could to survive. And so their minds might just, you know, have said, go home, (laughs) you know, or put them in a space of a home that may or may not have been real for them to be able to cope with their situation, you know. So hindsight is 20-20. But so there's that. But this is the thing I also want to talk about. And that is, is that even though people uh, do this uh, kind of nostalgia and, oh, those were the good old days and that kind of stuff, there is a, um, there is a, a, a bigger deception that, it, that is going on. So much so that they have had recent studies that show that there are two ways that people can view their past. And some people use their past as a defense mechanism. Now, remember I said we've got this onslaught of uh, childhood shows from 20 and 30 years ago that are being rebooted and people are loving them. You know, you would think, oh my God, this is so corny. I can't believe they're remaking it. And all of a sudden they remake it and it's a big hit. And you're like, why is this? And that is in part due to the studies that show that either people will avoid historical facts so that they can have a, uh, a, a, a idyllic look at their past. And what they call this is restorative nostalgia. Now, a lot of people would just say this is revisionist history. It's revisionist history if you're the one writing the history books, okay? But if you if this is just your personal recollection, then it would be classified as what they call restorative 
nostalgia. Now, in the word restorative, it is where people have chosen to ignore or take out parts. Uh, the studies that were recently done started with how people viewed apartheid back in South Africa. So, uh, you know, you have that side. And this is where they want to return to this fantasy version of the past. Instead of, they have other people, the other side is reflective nostalgia, where they are more critically aware of what went on and they try to look at their past to learn from the past. Okay, so there's that. All right. Then there is this other thing that goes well within the restorative now uh, nostalgia. And I'm going to give you a book. Uh, by a great thinker of our time. And this is the cognitive scientist, uh, Steven Pinker. And if you've read anything from Steven Pinker, you know that it is not going to be light and breezy. Boy gets down, honey. He, he breaks it down. Now, this particular book uh, that I'm going to talk about right now is uh, it's a tome. It, it really is. It's, um, what is it? it's almost not, well, 840 something pages. I will suggest you get it on audio because even on audio it's 36 hours long, but it is fantastic because what it does is it breaks down the history of violence. And, and the thing is, is as you're going through it, you start to learn that the, the times that people thought about as nostalgic were very violent because the name of the book is called The Better Angel Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And in there, I mean, like, oh, when he was talking about gang, gang members and fighting, and then he, and then he switched it up to how uh, gentlemen used to settle duels and now they settle it with lawsuits it was it was eye opening for me. Now I will be honest with you. This book is very long, and I have been listening to it for over a year. Listening, you hear me? Because this is one of those books that I was like, when I got you know the 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 Kindle version, I was like, this is too dense. Let me just you know listen, and I'm still making it through it. But he's got some zingers in there that are are phenomenal. So let me let me just talk real quick about how it is that people can idolize more violent times. Um, he even talks about what makes what makes um, violence happen. And he said that, says, as, uh, and I, I believe it to be true, that violence centers around revenge, sadism. And we've talked about sadism. That's the love of and the pleasure you get from inflicting or witnessing pain against others. And then tribalism. And uh, one of the things that I kept getting as I was listening to the book and the different uh, time periods and examples that he used was that people seem to never learn. They don't realize that when you have your tribe and your tribe is all about we and them, when you get rid of all of them, you don't stop. Violence does not stop once your enemies are defeated. That's once everybody is, if it's peaceful, there will be no peace. If it's predicated on tribalism, revenge, sadism, or just even tribalism, it will still continue. There will be infighting. Just ask Julius Caesar, you know, so it doesn't stop. And, and why people don't realize that is something. But in this book, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because people would remember uh, just even decades before 
where you might as easily eat your dinner as get stabbed or run through with a sword at the dinner table for saying the wrong thing. But yet and still, when people would reflect back on the quote unquote good old times, they would totally take out that understanding and argue that their present time was more violent. And it's not. He has shown conclusively that we have moved from more violence to less violence. Now, the violence may um, still, it's not that it's not there, but the violence is more contained and it is on a different level. So for instance, um, whereas people used to uh, fight hand-to-hand, fisticuff, or even pushing boulders down on you when they got you to a certain place and they could annihilate you like that. Then they moved from close combat to uh, ranged combat with arrows and uh, uh, catapulting uh, fireballs, uh, Greek fire, whatever you want to call it. Then they uh, moved to uh, the gun, And then it became the automatic gun and then it became tanks and then it became airplanes and all of these different things that people move towards. So our violence became more and more sophisticated so that now they believe the war next time will not have boots on the ground. It won't even require drones. If you take out people's digital connection to the world, they will devolve into anarchy. If you take away people's ability to bank, Um, ability to uh, power the machines of their homes. And all of this is done simply by using the Internet of Things and the Internet. That's a war that you can do a lot with. And not only that, now I got this other statement from a book I've highlighted before that I highly recommend as well called Sapiens. And it uh, says, there's this one little statement in there that stands out for this point. It talks about uh, how belief systems can get people to do just about anything you want them to. And he says that uh, one priest can do the work of a thousand soldiers more economically and efficiently. Okay. And so nostalgia has a belief problem inherent in it because it makes you be selective in what you remember about your time. Now, going back to the sibling that was like, no, I remember it this way. I would now say that I would, you know, believe that this particular sibling is using more of the reflective nostalgia that has a critical awareness of what was going on, as opposed to the other's Uh, using restorative nostalgia that paints a fanciful version of of history by ignoring certain facts. And, you know, like I said before, now, you know, I stand corrected. And I've even said so (laughs) because nostalgia's folly is it's slick and it's seductive in how it it goes about. So let's talk a a little bit about... um, developmental growth and how we get to the point where we tend to believe things that are, we we pretty them up and we revise them. So in our lifespan development, when we are little, 
The world is big, and then the bigger we get, the smaller the world becomes, whether that's technological age, industrial age, or whatever. It is just what it is. Um, So much so that when kids are young, things done to them are more impactful than when they are older. And it is not because uh, they've grown to ignore the little things. No, it is because the way we are wired, we take in our surroundings and they have a greater impact on us when we, were, when we are young so that we learn and develop a database or a repository of events and memories that help us as we uh, become older and are expected to take on more responsibility. So, An unkind word said to a five-year-old becomes a lifelong debilitating issue for a 45-year-old because it gets into the formative fibers of who we are as a person. And so they can actually say, that remember I talked about those parents who now want their kids to share their childhood? They can actually say, that what we remember in those formative years is bigger than what we experience now. And so there is a true homesickness, homecoming longing we have for the simpler times. And that is why a lot of the shows that we would classify as corny or uh, outdated are now coming back in vogue and people are, are scampering to them to, you know, to be able to enjoy them. Um, I've talked about a thermodynamic uh, phenomenon that we have on Earth called entropy before. But what I want to talk about is uh, another way of looking at it as entropy representing the lack of order or predictability. When we look at entropy, we look at it as the gradual decline into, into disorder. It's how we look at chaos. And so because entropy is enveloped in time, meaning that the longer you have something, the more degradation happens, the more decline happens, the more depreciation happens, is that the further removed we get from an event that changed our life, the more we depreciate the pains or the struggles that were in that life so that we are left with washed, purified, whatever you want to, how you, fanciful memories that we, we basically, we took the fish, we ate the fish and left the bone and only the good fish memory is left of what we are thinking about when we think about our past because it would be too painful to remember all of the hurt and the pain. People even tell you, don't linger on the bad, just remember the good. And they're all working on this. Uh, I want to talk about, um, uh, give a shout out to a Greek philosopher. You know, he's part of the Stoics and no, he was a contemporary of Aristotle and them. I'm sorry. But his name is Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was uh, the purveyor of such terms as you cannot step twice into the same river. To sum up some of his biggest talking points, it simply put as this, nothing endures but change. And that works right into entropy because nothing endures but change. And encompassed in the um, 
lack of predictability and the gradual decline into disorder, what we have is nostalgia being a defense against that. And so we cling to that which has already happened and we can keep it frozen in our minds that however we want to, to help us to cling on to something that is not always moving towards chaos, disorder, and ruin. And with that, um, there, there is this, this idyllic thing. So, um, you know, like I, I talk about um, the swings of the pendulum, cause and effect, polarity, and all of that kind of stuff. We've had a spate of very popular films that were dystopic, meaning they were like entropy leading to gradual decline and disorder of our civilization. So dystopia has a twin on the other end called utopia. And there are always ways, you know, to go between the two. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the idyllic utopia because that is the area that nostalgia lives in. And as you can see, it's starting to make a swing towards that with the resurgence of these childhood favorites of um, innocuous little uh, sitcoms that they had dealing with uh, sanitized family life where everybody was happy and and, um, the little transgressions could all be summed up in 22 minutes, you know, that type of thing. So with... um, the utopia, they had a term for it, and it was called Arcadia. Now, Arcadia uh, came down through Greek mythology, and Arcadia was derived from the name of the land where Pan, the god of pleasure, lived. And in this utopia, it was idyllic, and most of the time it was remembered as simpler times and back in... um, medieval times, because they still had it then, uh, it was pastoral land of plenty, and it was unspoiled and harmonious with wilderness. You know, you even hear people talk about, I want to just return to the land. I just wanted to return, you know, to the time, simpler times, off the grid, and all of these different things. And that is part of this uh, folly that we have in nostalgia. Now, the thing about this Arcadia, if you notice, it was sparseness. You didn't have to fool with a lot of people. The one, the great thing about population growth and all of that is it brings about technological advancements and evolutions. One of the many bad things about it, besides overcrowding, is it can bring on uh, aggressive behavior because you have different people in close proximity to each other and thus violence, right? Because of revenge, sadism, tribalism. And when you have large populations, people tend to try to clump themselves into groups of meaningfulness, us against them, so that they can have many, so that they can feel protected within the masses, all right? And So when people think about a idyllic plane of existence, they tend to think of a place where they have space, (laughs) that things are not as convoluted and complicated as they are today, um, and where 
they had complete reign and rule over everything in that area, meaning that the birds sang on on um, command because there is a harmony. And um, in a, a different podcast, I talked about locus of control. And I talked about whether or not you were internal or external and how nowadays it's okay if you change in between to match the situation so that you don't throw yourself into cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is the the distance between morality, ethics, and what we can perceive as good and right and those things that are, are skew from that, whether they be bad or they don't make sense. So, for instance, cognitive dissonance um, is prevalent in, in PTSD because PTSD sufferers a lot of times are having to deal with um, why am I still here? It could be survivor guilt. It could be um, having been in um, combat and seeing horrors that have happened to them then as opposed to a life where it's not there. And so how do you go from being hypervigilant and always on edge in dangerous situations to now the threat is not there, but you've been trained that the only way you survive is to be hypervigilant, you know? So there, that is an example of cognitive dissonance. And so now we have people who live in this world where we have the most people we have ever had. I mean, 8 billion and counting. They are saying that that number is going to explode by 2100 if we continue with the models of how we are procreating right now, right? And you can even see it in different ethnic groups. Uh, Well, I'm not going to get into that because that could lead into politics. But I'll just say, suffice to say, in the tribalism comes uh, the, the effect of looking at how many people are producing as opposed to how many people of other ethnicities. And so much so that they are trying to force um, people with wombs that are able to reproduce to not be able to not be able to reproduce because maybe sort of, kind of, they want to make sure that their numbers don't continue to dwindle. I'm just going to put that out there. This is not anything political. I'm not saying anything, y'all. Just saying. So, uh, because it's in regards to this whole nostalgia and the folly of it, you know, these fantastic tales are real. So let me go back and review because I've I've thrown out a few things to deal with when you think of nostalgia. First and foremost, when we started out, I talked about how nostalgia was not uh, good. It was a medical condition that uh, bordered on mental illness for people who had been in uh, extreme stress, usually on the battlefield, and how they had a pain or aching to go back home to be able to get away from the rigors and the stress of warfare. Then I talked about how it um, evolved into this idyllic remembrance of a, a time past and how recent studies have shown how people divide up the way they look at their past as either reflective or restorative. And with restorative, that's where you take out all the bad stuff and you only uh, look at the good or 
you may, you turn the bad stuff, you turn it into a way to make it look good so that your memories welcome and comfort you because maybe your current situation is too hard and it's a retreat. Whereas people who reflect on their past are more critically aware of what happened. All right. Then we brought in, um, Stephen Pinkler's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Why Violence Has Declined. And I brought that in um, to show how farcical it can be, where people remember times that were much more violent than they are now. But when they remember them, they will tell you, oh, it wasn't like this. This is bad. It, It wasn't that bad back then. But we have evidence that shows we are on the decline of violence instead of on the uptick. Okay, so then I talked about good old Heraclitus and he talked about how there is nothing but change and how you really cannot ever go home again by the order of entropy and how it is the gradual decline into disorder or how things degrade and lose value over time. And so in people's um need to make sense of their world, they apply a value to their past that may not have really been there, but it helps them so that when they need to retreat into their memories because today might be too hard, they have this idyllic summary of of how their past was. And then I talked about good old Arcadia, the utopia the land of Pan, where people go for unspoiled, harmonious, shepherd, pastoral times uh, where the land is a plenty and there's always mint juleps on the porch waiting for you and the breeze is always the perfect temperature. You know, so like I said, we have covered quite a bit today uh, dealing with nostalgia. But I really want to bring that up because I want to tell you it's okay to have it if it's within context. If you are a person who is wanting to go back to a moral time where you thought that morals were uh, more instilled, I would venture to say that we were probably in a similar time. It's just that we didn't have the ability to broadcast it immediately through the internet. And that's why people didn't know about the depravities that were going on around us. So for your health and for harmony within yourself and others who are not restorative in their look backs on nostalgia, I would encourage you to consider looking at the past as it really was. All right. Guess what? My time is up. I thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spiva with another podcast of Wisdom Smack. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, rate, and review, and share. And if you would like to uh, support this podcast, Always check our show notes for information about books listed, where you can get them. The links um, for most of the books go to Amazon. And then sometimes there are links for articles and you can use our link at michellespiva.com. For- And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, 
please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.